Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series for primary care clinicians. My name is Charlie Andrews and I'm your host for this series. Throughout the course of this series, I speak to specialists in various aspects of gastroenterology and we talk about various common presenting complaints and conditions to try to give you up-to-date and reliable advice about when to suspect, how to diagnose, who to refer and how to manage patients with common clinical presentations in gastroenterology. This series is brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. A quick disclaimer before we begin. Firstly, this podcast series is designed for healthcare professionals only. Secondly, the views and advice expressed by the speakers during this podcast series are designed to supplement your learning and understanding of these conditions and should not be used in place of clinical guidelines. In this podcast episode, I'm speaking to Professor Pali Hunjin about functional dyspepsia. Now, functional dyspepsia has previously been known as non-ulcer dyspepsia and essentially refers to patients who have no cause for their dyspeptic symptoms. As we know, dyspepsia is an extremely common presentation and around 20% of the general population suffers from dyspepsia. However, only about one in five of those patients will actually have a, an organic cause, i.e. an identifiable cause for their symptoms, and the remaining four-fifths will have no cause identified at all and will fall into this category of functional dyspepsia. Pally is exceptionally knowledgeable about functional conditions of all sorts, and so I'm really pleased to have him here speaking to us today. During this episode of the podcast, Pally is going to give us a really thorough review of functional dyspepsia. And I'm going to ask him to deliver that very shortly. He's going to start by giving us an overview of some of the key salient points in diagnosis and management of functional dyspepsia. He's then going to go into a bit more detail about what is functional dyspepsia and how do we define it. He's then going to give us a really helpful approach to the patient with dyspeptic symptoms and then how we can make that diagnosis of functional dyspepsia. He's then going to give us an overview of managing functional dyspepsia and then we're going to broaden it out a little bit to talk about functional bowel conditions in general. But first of all I'd just like Pally to introduce himself. So if you could just tell the audience a bit about yourself that'd be great Pally, thank you. Yes, um, thank you for this invitation uh, Charlie, very much appreciated. So my name is Pally Pally Hanjil, I'm Emeritus Professor of Primary Care and General Practice at Newcastle University and uh, a founding member of the UK and European Primary Care Societies for Gastroenterology. Um, having been a GP for many years in the past, I'm very much aware of the day-to-day -day problems we have to deal with and the difficulties that we face. Um, functional dyspepsia is an interesting topic and uh, it's a difficult one, um, but I hope that uh, we can start to scratch the surface and perhaps um, deal with some of the challenges this afternoon. Great, thank you very much, Pally. I'm certainly really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about functional dyspepsia, uh, and I'm sure that our listeners are are keen to hear what your thoughts are as well. So, why don't you take it away? Thank you. Um, one of the most difficult and challenging things for clinicians is dealing with problems that are difficult to define, and which do not have a straightforward approach to management. How much easier it is and more satisfying, I'm sure you will agree, 
to diagnose and treat a bone fracture than a problem which is difficult to define or describe uh, for which there are no effective or uh, definitive treatments. Such is the world of general practice where we see people with undifferentiated, difficult to define problems. Yet our patients do suffer such problems commonly. And as doctors, we have to respond to these often with a sense of relative failure and helplessness, if I may be further clear on this. Many such problems are usually categorized as being functional in nature. That is to say, without having a clear anatomical or physiological abnormality underlying them. Dyspepsia is frequently in this category. And today's topic, of course, is functional dyspepsia, which is a particularly complicated and difficult entity to think about and to deal with. So in my podcast today, I plan to cover firstly an overview and to summarize our understanding of functional dyspepsia. Then I plan to go on to specific definitions and categories of functional dyspepsia. And I'll follow this through with a potential pathway for clinical evaluation of uh, our patients with this condition. And in the end, I'll try to update us on our current thinking around functional GI disorders in general. So first, an overview. And if you listeners are pressed for time, I hope that this section alone will cover most of the things that are important. We know that uh, primary care remains the first port of call for patients in most countries in Europe, with gastrointestinal problems accounting for around 10% of all consultations, half of which are for upper gastrointestinal problems. In the UK alone, there are 1 million consultations per day in primary care, yes, 1 million per day, around which we can estimate that 50,000 or so are likely to be thus for upper gastrointestinal problems. This is a huge number. Our patients present with undifferentiated symptoms, often involving different body parts and bodily symptoms. And the role of the general practitioner is to formulate a working hypothesis and a diagnosis to guide further management. Dyspepsia, as a global term, overlaps with other common GI problems, such as disorders related to the esophagus, the gallbladder, the bowel, particularly the irritable bowel syndrome. Often these other problems coexist with other non-gastrointestinal problems, such as tiredness or musculoskeletal problems. Thus, we actually face most patients with an understanding of their global situation, I hope, rather than homing in specifically to one particular system or one particular part of the body. Functional dyspepsia as a specific entity is dependent on the exclusion of other problems, essentially after an upper GI endoscopy. And it occurs in the presence of a normal endoscopy, that's important. And in fact, in most instances, in normal specialized tests, such as pH monitoring or impedance studies. These specialized tests are not performed at primary care level. And there is a great deterrence to us even requesting simple things like a diagnostic endoscopy because of long waiting lists, the high likelihood of there being a normal result, and of course, because of financial and other resource difficulties. The key factor in this initial management 
is the exclusion of the possibility of worrying lesions such as cancer and the judicious application of the so-called red flags and alarm symptoms. This is absolutely central. In such instances where dangerous pathology might occur, our management needs to be urgent and is essentially based on referral for secondary care. In practical terms, a GP might consider the diagnosis of functional dyspepsia in a patient where the initial recommended approaches have not been successful. In other words, you've tried things which you thought would work, but they haven't worked. This is normally the route by which we decide that we're almost certainly dealing with a functional problem. In patients who are not considered at risk of other lesions, such as cancer, these approaches are well established and supported by the UK NICE guidelines. Basically, the approach is either to test and treat for Helicobacter pylori and or to use proton pump inhibitors in the first instance. Failure of management in this setting or an inadequate response suggests the possibility of a functional problem. The situation is complicated by the lack of reliability of specific symptoms towards a diagnosis. This is unfortunate because we rely a great deal on taking an accurate history, but associations between specific items of history and the ultimate diagnosis, these links are rather tenuous. Even the cardinal symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease, which overlaps with dyspepsia, the cardinal symptoms of regurgitation and heartburn actually have limited predictive value. And the possibility of, of course, functional esophageal problems and um, functional dyspepsia overlapping does need to be considered. Against this backdrop, acid suppression therapy in some papers is reputed to reduce functional dyspepsia symptoms in 30 to 70% of patients and Helicobacter pylori in 24 to 82% of patients. And as an aside, prokinetications, which are actually not available in the UK, are said to improve the situation in more than a quarter of patients who take them. However, clearly these data need careful interpretation as they fly in the face of common logic for a disorder that is not specifically acid or motility related. You can see the lack of connectivity here between the diagnosis of a functional problem and a potential successful outcome using PPIs. A likely reason for these confounding results is the most likely overlap between functional dyspepsia and acid-sensitive soft-cell disorders, which of course can produce relatively similar symptoms. Investigations at primary care level beyond helicobacter pylori testing commonly include, of course, the basic blood tests for blood count, liver function tests, urea and electrolytes, etc. And quite often we do have access to uh, ultrasound examinations, which can pick up hepatobiliary problems. But again, the presence of gallstones will not necessarily help symptom management in functional dyspepsia. And simply having gallstones is not necessarily an explanation for the symptoms. General practitioners are becoming increasingly aware of the applicability of psychological therapies and the use of psychotropics as neuromodulators for use in functional disorders. Low-dose tricyclics and the SSRIs have been accepted by most clinicians as treatment modalities for 
functional gastrointestinal problems. This treatment does require an open and thoughtful negotiation with some patients who might interpret this negatively with the implications that they have a mental health problem as their root cause. This can cause an upset unless a careful and thoughtful explanation has been exchanged. In addition to this, a careful exploration of the patient's own insights into their symptoms is important. Together with general health advice, of course, around smoking, nutrition, diet, weight, and sleep management. Sleep management may turn out to be more important than many of the other factors in relation to upper GI functional problems. The new world of psychogastroenterology or gastropsychology is fast evolving, particularly in North America, and is developing an increasing number of uh, targeted psychological interventions using trained therapists. In the UK, of course, we have a problem with resources and the level of demand is likely to exceed the availability of such services. So let's move on to specific definitions and categories of functional dyspepsia. The Rome Foundation for Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders is an international organization which over many years has sought to define, categorize, and guide the management of the functional GI disorders. Their latest iteration, the Rome 4 guidelines, defined functional dyspepsia as a chronic disorder that impairs well-being and is characterized by one or more of four bothersome symptoms. I'll mention these. These symptoms need to have occurred at least four times a month for the previous two months. And they are, of course, prandial fullness, early satiety, epigastric pain or burning not associated with defecation, and an exclusion of other medical conditions after an appropriate evaluation. Two specific subtypes of functional dyspepsia have been recognized. Firstly, postprandial distress syndrome. This includes bothersome postprandial fullness. And this might include upper abdominal bloating, postprandial nausea, or excessive belching. Secondly, epigastric pain syndrome, which includes pain or burning localized to the epigastrium, often of a burning quality, but without a retrosternal component. Essentially, the postprandial distress syndrome is characterized by meal-induced symptoms, whereas epigastric pain syndrome refers to epigastric pain or burning that does not occur exclusively after meals and occur during fasting and may even be improved by food. So just to recap, functional dyspepsia by the Rome 4 definition is broken down into postprandial distress syndrome and epigastric pain syndrome. I have to say that many of these definitions are, are required for research purposes and are used certainly by academics working on various aspects of uh, defining and researching into these areas. These definitions are not commonly known within primary care, and certainly even within secondary care, they're likely to be known beyond the world of gastroenterology. The population prevalence of functional dyspepsia is thought to be, thought to be between 10 and 20%. Uh, some of the differences between different countries are likely to be due to different linguistic expressions used for dyspepsia, and of course, variations in the way studies have been done. Still, 20 to 20% is quite 
is high failure. Risk factors for functional dyspepsia are contradictory in the literature, but certainly female gender and increasing age have been consistently recognized as being associated with it. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's overlap with esophageal reflux disease in about a third of patients. There's also an overlap between functional dyspepsia and irritable bowel syndrome, unsurprisingly, in some studies, up to 50%. All in all, therefore, quite a mix um, in trying to delineate a specific diagnosis from all these data is going to be a challenge at any level. Turning now to a potential pathway for a clinical evaluation of patients who have not been previously investigated, uh, the following steps have been mooted. First, and obviously, an assessment to confirm that the symptoms are arising from the upper GI tract. This is important because we have to ensure that cardiac or pulmonary or other problems are not responsible for the symptoms. Secondly, of course, patients with alarm symptoms, that is unexplained weight loss, recurrent vomiting, progressive dysphagia, or GI bleeding should be investigated to exclude malignant tumors. Thirdly, and we sometimes forget about this, we need to consider the use of NSAIDs, aspirin, and other dyspepsia-inducing drugs which may be responsible for the symptoms. Fourthly, if typical symptoms of reflux are present, we need to consider a provisional diagnosis of esophageal reflux disease, either by itself or in association with functional dyspepsia. Most importantly, an upper GI endoscopy should be performed in older patients, particularly because of the increased possibility of organic disease. And this is important also in younger patients where the symptoms are of quite recent onset. So given the nature and definition of functional dyspepsia, it is perhaps surprising that the recommendations for its management have been dominated by drug therapies. The two commonest drug options are either A, to test and treat for Helicobacter pylori. This treatment is most cost-effective when the prevalence of H. pylori is high in a particular setting. And B, secondly, the use of proton pump inhibitors extended dose for at least four weeks. I do need to mention prokinetic drugs. They have shown value in functional dyspepsia in several studies, but they are, of course, no longer available in the UK and in most Western countries because of their association with cardiac dysrhythmic problems. So towards the end of this podcast, a return to the basic concept of the gastrointestinal functional disorders. Recent thinking has actually recategorized them as disorders of brain-gut function or rather dysfunction. And this is the line likely to be taken in the next version of the Rome Foundation guidelines. This concept recognizes the neurophysiological and psychological links between the central nervous system and the gut, together with the ways in which the brain processes and deals with incoming signals. As such, these functional disorders are now being placed closer to the neuropsychological aspects of bodily functioning, rather than being much more placed in the somatic setting. This would seem logical in light of our present knowledge 
and the somewhat limited treatments that we can offer that person. As I mentioned already, a careful exploration of the patient's own insights into their symptoms is important. The new world of psychogastroenterology or gastropsychology, call it by Cuban will, is fast developing with gut-directed interventions coming through using trained therapists. Their relative lack of availability and restrictions because of resource do limit their use in many countries, even though in the longer run, these may be much more cost-effective in both direct and indirect costs. Finally, at a local organizational level, a crucial factor in the effective diagnosis and management of patients with functional dyspepsia, in my view, is likely to be based on good local collaboration between primary care practitioners, gastroenterologists, and of course, with the involvement of patients towards the design of services. Patients, after all, are the ones with problems, and they need to be involved in how our services should be configured to respond to their needs. At the same time, we do need to recognize that specialist investigations to exclude specific lesions are likely to produce diminishing returns, even as we invest more in higher levels of technology. At present, effective symptom and overall patient management remains a challenge. So in closing, I would like to quote William Osler. The good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. I think this applies very much to the functional gastrointestinal disorders, particularly functional dyspepsia. I hope you found this useful. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Pally. That yeah, was yeah. really, really interesting. I have a few questions, if that's okay. So, Pally, because because at the moment, getting endoscopies from primary care is quite challenging as a result of backlogs due to COVID. I was just wondering, is it possible to make a diagnosis of functional dyspepsia without an endoscopy? It's a really good question to ask whether a diagnosis of functional dyspepsia can be made without an endoscopy. The, the fact is that uh, the prevalence of functional dyspepsia is so high and the um, likeliest patients to have functional dyspepsia are the ones who are not at risk of uh, having cancer. This means, of course, that if you use conventional um, terminology, the endoscopy is, if I could put it in inverted commas, not very helpful or even a waste of time. And as you've said, a lack of resources and access means that endoscopies are not very likely uh, available uh, easily in most parts of uh, the UK. So I think in spite of the fact that technically a diagnosis of functional dyspepsia can only be made with a normal endoscopy, we actually have to proceed on the basis of a presumed diagnosis at a pragmatic level. Do of course use uh, the initial management therapies of either test and treat or PPI. It's the failure of those therapies that then um, points us more directly towards functional dyspepsia. I have a final question. As you alluded to again, the access to psychological therapies is, is very challenging from primary care at the moment. Um, if you have that patient with functional dyspepsia and you feel that that is a likely diagnosis, perhaps you've got the endoscopy back and that's negative, and that's how you know we're going down that route. Are there 
are there strategies that that you could give to GPs that would help patients to understand the condition and try and move them forwards? Because I think sometimes it's quite difficult to, to to move these sorts of patients forwards with their condition and try to help them understand and and improve their symptoms. What sort of strategies can you give to GPs to help them with their patients in this situation? Yes, I think that's a very good question. Um, one of the difficulties is that I think as GPs, we're not necessarily um, equipped all that well to delve into the psychosocial um, aspects of the functional disorders. For example, we um, are not necessarily likely to be able to get um, details about early life, um, uh, adverse factors, post-traumatic um, stress uh, situations, perhaps abuse, bullying, and so on. Many of these factors have been associated with the functional GI disorders. And to some extent, um, going in that direction means opening a new field of uh, uh, inquiry and therapy, which in my view does require a much more specialist trained approach. Um, there is, a, at the same time, in the UK, I think we recognize a move towards the uh, psychological therapeutic side of things. The recent guidelines on the management of chronic pain, for example, have uh, detuned and discouraged the use of uh, analgesics, uh, particularly the opiates, but other analgesics as well, and uh, have very much directed clinicians towards a more um, central nervous system, uh, CNS approach towards managing and coping with pain and pain disorders. So it may well be that uh, um, in the years to come um, that there will be better services um, of that nature, which may, be, may extend into, um, into gastroenterology. But if I were pushing this point further forward, I would say there's an opportunity here as the NHS evolves yet again with a new um, set of uh, organizations and, and regulations for the integrated care systems to consider ways of connecting things up. Um, perhaps it is time for us to work with our mental health trusts uh, in relation to uh, physical disorders or at least uh, physical symptom disorders. And there's an opportunity here for our acute trusts to start to um, work out ways of more effective effectively managing patients' symptoms other than by using an endoscope and a prescription pad. Um, being facetious, forgive me. Um, but I think a, a wider, more holistic approach is certainly called for, and there may be an opportunity here for uh, proactive general practitioners to push this further. On that aspirational but completely sensible um, note, Pally, I think we'll end the podcast um, but thank you so much for giving your time. I found that really interesting to talk about what seems to be an extremely common condition um, and also a very challenging one for primary care. But lots and lots of food for thought there. So thank you so much. Um, and listeners, thank you very much for, for joining us today. I hope that you've also found this very interesting and stimulating. Uh, and I look forward to speaking to you again at the next uh, podcast episode. So thank you very much, Pally. Thank you.